continue on in numbers and, and we have the uh, if you if you need another copy let me know we can always get this is the um bible project and they do a great job of kind of laying out a book doesn't mean they get everything uh necessarily perfectly right but it gives you a good overall picture of the book and we're dealing with uh the end portion so that far right side we're looking at i call on the plains numbers 25 through 27 and so what my goal is, is that this week plus two more weeks, that we're going to move somewhat quickly through the rest of Numbers, <coughs> partly because I want to dive into the study of James, and I want to make sure I can fit that in uh, before we end our normal Wednesday nights in May. And so wanting to wrap it up, but also we're going to start seeing things get recounted. So we're about to, the next week, dive into the laws and work back through the laws, kind of uh, it's interesting because as you go through the whole Pentateuch, because you work through the law, you see things that are repeated. And one of the things when you read God's word, everything's important. But if God repeats it, well, it means extra emphasis, right? That's, that's it's there for a reason. And as you work through the Pentateuch and you start seeing him repeat these laws, the Day of Atonement's repeated, the Feast, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, so the things that they need to do are repeated. Well, we need, to, we need to pause a little bit and say, okay, they're repeated, why? And it tells us they're important. As we work through the Gospel of John, we've been at the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So you recognize that these are important feasts. Here's Jesus Christ he started in his earthly public ministry, and we're at a Passover. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles, and now we're in a conversation with Nicodemus, but it's all centered around this feast day, this, this specific time in their calendar when everyone's in a, or is supposed to come to Jerusalem. And we're seeing here in Numbers and in Exodus, and, and we saw in Leviticus, all the framework for why that was built in. And so we see the fruit of it in the New Testament. And as we mentioned, we went through Leviticus. Uh, we understand atonement from Leviticus. We, we get an idea of the depth of our atonement. And here we're seeing the different laws. And again, Numbers is about coming into the promise and they're prepping to enter in. Deuteronomy is the recap. It is the re-going re over everything again. And I, I'm planning on a series on a Sunday morning in the future where we'll do Deuteronomy on Sunday morning as we recap that. And obviously on Wednesday nights, we'll be moving into James. But here we are on the plains, Numbers 25 through 27. Now, two weeks ago, we had a look at Balaam and Balak. And Balaam is the famous donkey-talking story. So how do you know Balaam? Well, his donkey talks to him, right? And he, he's a prophet. He is not a a biblical prophet. This is a sorcerer, if you want to call it that. This is an occult pagan prophet. And, and we watch uh, Balak, the king of Moab, hire this sorcerer who has been successful in his work. He has a reputation, which tells you something, right? How close he is to Satan in the sense of who has made him successful, who has allowed him uh, to do this. Uh, some success is probably built off his own charisma, his ability to read weather and understand nature. But a lot of it's going to be the occult. It's going to be demonic influence. And it's interesting to watch how God takes a pagan king and a pagan prophet and he blesses his people through them. Here are two, two men who originally are fixated on cursing Israel and Israel is in the plain. They don't know what's going on. They don't know about this until it's done. It's written. It's recorded. They're reading their history. God has worked 
a blessing. He orchestrates the whole conversation. He controlled what was said about his people. He worked his glory through a profiteering prophet named Balaam. Well, we're in the same location. In this moment, Israel is not moved. They're in the plains. They're down below. Moab and Midian are meeting up in the hills. They're the ones looking down on Israel. Israel is still unaware of what God has done and is doing for them. But Moab and Midian change course. They have decided to move and tempt Israel with their life, worship, and world. And it's a temptation that leads to a colossal failure. Chapter 25 is a very sad chapter in Numbers. Now, we tend to read through Numbers, and we, we can read it slow or fast, however fast you read. We can read it in one sitting. We can read it over weeks. However, we don't read it over 40 years. Chapter 25, and I want you to, in your mind, go back to Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, Moses goes up a mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments. What is Israel doing while he's getting the Ten Commandments? Sinning. What kind of sin were they doing? They make a God, they worship the God, and what does that worship of that false God entail? Immorality. It's pagan-style worship. God is orchestrating praise for his people from the mountaintops, and then the next thing that happens is Moab and Midian comes down, and you fast forward 40 years, you fast forward to the next generation, and what do you have? You have Israel failing again, drawn in to worship with Moab. And it's not worshiping God. It's not worshiping God Moab's way. We get caught up in that. It's not the Midianite way. It's not the Moabite way. It's the pagan way. They pull them in to the sacrifice to their God. And I want to give a little picture, especially in a group where there's not all the kids here, but what drew Israel over and over again was the fertility gods. And it had to do with agriculture. So you're an agricultural society, and the God that you're worshiping, the fertility God, and this God is going to bless you with harvest. And they're so caught up or enamored with worshiping this idol, this false God, that they, in essence, deny God. And I want you to recognize it's not just, just not that it's not bad enough, what they do or that they chase an idol, but in their worship of this idol, they're telling God, you can't do this. We don't believe in you. We deny you. Now, the fertility God was worshipped with rampant immorality. There was the temple prostitutes. And so it was a complete wicked debacle. Now, if you're wondering how common this was, it permeated the ancient world. In Leviticus, where it says, don't let your daughters be used as temple prostitutes, and it says that, the word in Leviticus is don't let your daughters be holy girls because prostitution was linked to pagan worship. Go all the way back into Genesis. Judah has offspring, and what does his daughter-in-law do? She dresses up like a... And she's a temple shrine prostitute, and it's so common that it doesn't make him blink an eye. It's a little embarrassing that she kept his staff, but it's not embarrassing that he engaged in it. I just want you to see this permeates their culture. And so you have now this overwhelming desire to have success in agriculture and 
what the world is very good at, Satan. You have a style of worship that appeals to the basest of man's desires. It's the basis of human's desires, but I use man on purpose. Because one thing you recognize is this worship involves the men engaging in immorality with temple prostitutes. And so I think when you look at this and you see the numbers change, a lot of men end up dying from the plague. And a lot of men, obviously women and children, because the plague goes through, but they're facing the punishment that's there. But they engage in this. God is working blessing instead of a curse, and they are engaged in idolatry and immorality on a grand scale. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and you get a feeling for how big this is, how broad this is. Now, 25 contains the broad picture, and then it gets a very specific illustration, and then you have Phineas spearing two people in the act of immorality. So it is a pretty graphic chapter, but it paints this picture for us. So Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. The whole act of immorality was part of the worship. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And by the way, Baal, or if you want to pronounce it right, it's Baal, but that drives me crazy. I'm going to say Baal for the rest of my life, just to irritate people who have a better education. Who want, it's Baal. I'm like, yeah, but in Virginia, it's Baal. So that's where it's going to be in this one. Um, so this God is that fertility God. He is always, this is why they're drawn to this God. Agricultural society, God of fertility, God of harvest, and it ties together. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And this is a burning, firing anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, mourning for sin, mourning for what's taking place. He's marching right by on purpose. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel, and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. And that's when the first time we hear about a plague. And what you see here is a diabolical plan that's built on the advice of Balaam. He's unable to curse for a prophet, but he found a way to, to connive for one. Numbers 31.16 says, speaking of the women that they save when they're destroying Midianites, on Balaam's advice, they caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. And Balaam gets killed when Israel goes and, and is called by God to punish Midian. Moab and Midian are interchanged here. They're two separate nations. They're not the same people. Midian is, is obviously worshiping with Moab, and what you see is daughters of Moab in a collective sense, and then you see this Midianite woman who's engaged in the brazen thing that's taking place in front of all the people to which Phineas responds. Um, Israel is engaging in wholesale idolatry, tempted by the fun and debauchery of their worship. And 
This rightfully incurs God's fierce anger, and he instructed Moses to hang the chiefs, which literally meant stoning them and then impaling them and leaving them on display. God's serious about what's taking place. Now remember, worshiping this God entails rejecting God. They're not adding, they're rejecting. We're going for this God to give us what we want so we get what we want. We will worship the God of fertility because God here won't take care of us. He's nothing, this God's everything. We oftentimes skirt over this, but what we find is that there's punished chiefs and possibly even more people based on verse 5. A lot of people look at verse 5 and they say, look at Moses, he didn't do what God said. I think they're misinterpreting the Hebrew and how it always builds on it. So God says, kill all the chiefs that were, that were doing this. Who's responsible? Hang them up. They've let their people do this. And don't think just one president, think a tribal system, and you're going to kill these chiefs. And Moses says to the judges, kill anyone that was involved in what's going on in the leadership. Not just chiefs, but trickle down to lieutenants and sergeants. You get the idea of what his command was. That number was likely as high as 1,000 leaders. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 10a of this instance, and he says 23,000 of the people were killed in the plague. The number here says 24,000. The Bible doesn't get it wrong. If you do math and 23,000 people die in a plague, that means 1,000 people died and were hung up on a sword. And I want you to think for a second about that. How bad and how dynamic and how drastic does a thousand dead bodies look? Your count all over each other, it's two million people. The numbers are about the same. And a thousand dead bodies are stoned and either their head is put on the end of a spear or they are impaled and set there dead. Does that have an effect on you? Is it noticeable? Now, you got to understand the second thing. The people as a whole are plagued. We have punished chiefs and we have plagued people. There's a thousand people hung on spears. There's people dying of this plague because they all engage in this idolatry. But who was the acting agent in this? Who in Israel can participate in temple prostitution? It's the daughters of Moab tempted who? It's the men that actually led in this. I'm not saying that women didn't get involved. I'm not saying that they didn't become holy girls in that sense as they would use in the Hebrew, that they didn't engage in this immorality as well. But you feel the weight, right? Why the daughters of Moab highlighted? And who is going to commit immorality with the daughters of Moab? It's going to be the men of Israel. And so what you have is right before we enter the promised land, 24,000 die. And I think that we could probably say that they're mostly men. The men are the ones committing this. And I want you to think about when we count the people at 600,000, that's 4%. If they're mostly men, that's 4% of the population that was ready to enter the land dies here. An interesting note, in the coming census, Simeon shows a significant reduction in population. You're the guy that walked in as Zimri, the son of a chief of Simeon. Simeon and Reuben are involved with the rebellion in the desert. And you see a drastic, a lot of tribes shrink. A lot of tribes have some growth. Simeon's loss, 
I don't know, maybe it's connected to the fact that they kept on rebelling. You go all the way back in time to Genesis, and Simeon doesn't have the best reputation that's there. Regardless, the people faced extreme loss. But I just want you to picture now, after the death of the chiefs, after a thousand people are stuck on poles that you walk by, that you see, and the rest of the leadership is weeping at the tabernacle, on their knees, repenting, mourning what has taken place, a guy named Zimri publicly engages in immorality. He and the woman with him fulfilled the fertility cult worship, breaking God's law physically, breaking God's law spiritually in the sense of denying God's power so they could have a fruitful crop and they could do whatever they wanted. And this is all done in front of mourning leaders. The rest of the leadership is broken, which they should be. They're kneeling down. They're seeing the affront to a true God. And I want you to realize something because we see the horrible part of Israel and here we see leaders that are mourning, that are broken, that are repentant. And what we see is there is a love for God amongst a portion of the leadership. There's a chunk of leadership that is connected to God's purpose and God's glory. I think a lot could be said for us as the church in the world today. Be more specific in America, get more specific in Virginia, get more specific in Culpeper. But the church today, that maybe more mourning could be done, that more mourning should be done. These men are doing what they should be doing. They're broken before God about what their people have done. But we recognize that all of Israel didn't share their passion. All don't heed the warning, but instead push their agenda. They pushed their religion, their rejection of truth in the pursuit of the world. And I want us to get a feel and the weight of how brazen Zimri is. Because you've got a huge chunk of leadership on their knees mourning what's being done and the affront to God and his glory and to his worship. You've got a thousand leaders stuck on a pole, left out, because the word in Hebrew specifically says when you impale somebody, and we get into the graphic of being impaled, their graphic, their word, because Hebrew is very emotional, so it's very much driven by, we're used to tenses and the structure of English, Greek, and most languages that are spoken today. <coughs> this language, tense, is, is defined by mood, the, the emotion that comes with the word. That's why it's very emotional. It's why the poetry is so, so beautiful. It's hard to even capture it. But the emotion of that word of impale specifically means don't bury. So not only are they up and out, it's this idea of not being buried. In other words, exposed. They don't have even the honor of that. And so it is a huge affront there. But how brazen is another Israelite that even in the midst of all that, they said by their action and word, I don't care. I worship whatever I want and I worship my way. Then I want you to pause for a second because we're all like, Zimri, what a, what a dog that guy is. And then think about your own heart for a second. How do we brazenly walk past the warnings God has put in place to pursue what we want to do? And it doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter what God's people are doing. It doesn't matter how much someone's warning. It doesn't matter how obvious it is that it's not in line with God's glory. We're going to do what we're going to do, and we're going to justify it. This guy's not shrinking in the town. 
saying, I'm going to still do what I want to do. One of the older Jewish letters, and I don't believe this is the, an accurate depiction, but what they came up with the story was that Zimri even said, I'll marry a Midianite woman. Moses, you did too. Now that's folklore that comes in, but it does grab a hold of this guy's attitude. He's very public in this. He doesn't care. And to combat that brazen rejection of God and his law enters a passionate leader, Phineas. He ends the act with one swift strike of his spear. The Bible says that he was jealous for his God, which says a lot about his character and the reality of what Zimri was attempting to do. This guy wasn't just engaging in immorality. This guy brought a Midianite woman into his camp, and he says, I'm going to worship Baal here. Amongst God's people, in front of God's people, the way the world does it, I'm going to bring this worship into God's house. And Phineas is having none of it. Look at 10 through 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, had turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous, or he was jealous, for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Notice what stopped the plague finally. What put the dot at the end of this? It's a spear point. It wasn't the thousand. It was one in the end. And why? Because God's a God of death and he's going to kill. That's what the world's going to say. No, because Phineas was what? The word we see, zealous, the word is actually in Hebrew, jealous. It's the same word. He was jealous for me, and so I did not kill everyone in my jealousy. In other words, what, Zin, uh, what, what, what Phineas displayed was righteous jealousy for God. He's honored, and then Moses, by the end of that, I'll finish reading it. It says, um, it says, Wherefore, behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God, and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Zalu, a prince of a chief house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianitish woman that was slain was Cosby, or Cosby, the daughter of Zur. He was head over a people and of a chief house in Midian. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Vex the Midianites and smite them, for they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they have beguiled you in the matter of Poor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a prince of Midian, their sister, which was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. Phineas honored Moses is instructed to, to punish Midian, which takes place in chapter 31. 31, punish Midian. 32, we're going to take over some land on that side, the Transjordan, and we're going to distribute it. Then we get to 33 through 36, and we're going to recount what we've been and where we've been, 40 different campsites, and then we're going to distribute the land. But I want us to think about something, and this is in some ways kind of the core lesson. There's three more points. There's a lot to go through, but this is the core thought that if I'm picking one thing to walk away from, this is it. Are we jealous for God like Phineas? And I want us to think on that, think on his action. What he did was a complete refusal of participation in any rejection of God's way and glory. When you spear two people together as they reject God, 
And I'm not telling you to go get a spear and come to church because we'll probably be like, ah, I don't know if you should stay. But when you spear two people together who are breaking God and denying God's law, that means this is not a person sitting down with someone and saying, you know, well, maybe what you're doing would maybe work. I mean, I can see maybe how that's worshiping God in your way and how you think he should worship. I can see how that's your perception of God. I mean, I mean, if you think of God that way, and, and I, you know, maybe, there's no maybe in this man. And I'm not pushing for being obnoxious. A spear through the belly is not obnoxious. It's deadly. So I want you to realize this is not just some brazen guy yelling at people. This is a guy who will not compromise what God has said. How does that look today? I put maybe the better question is how close do you flirt with the world? Are you at their religious festivals, their worldly temptations? Are you drawn to what they do and how they do it? Would you allow that to walk into God's house? How condoning are we? And I would say that Phineas had no give when it came to what God had said to do. This is not about your preference. Just make sure we get that out there. It's not about any of that, but I would dare say that worship has been corrupted in the church. That oftentimes we are not doing what Phineas does, but instead we're chatting with Zimri about what he's doing. And I want us to see something. Phineas was having none of it. Before you bring your spear, answer the question, how close are you to flirting with the world and what they do and how they worship and how they condone their behavior, and how they condone their worship, or condone their lack of worship. How condoning are you? Are you Phineas, or are you some version of a flake that's bending in the wind? Well, before we get to the punishment of Midian, which is next week, we first get a look at chapter 26. If you like numbers, there it is, accounted family. I am not going to read through all of 26 because it's long. There's a lot of numbers, and I think you could read it yourself and, and probably get it all. I want to kind of go over why we count, because this is the second count. This is how the book of Numbers gets its name. Unfortunately, it's built on two censuses, and it doesn't work well for people, right? The second we say numbers, people say 10,300 for the time of city, and, da -da 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 -da. and this one had 26,400, and we, we lose consciousness. But many of the reasons for the census and the previous one are the same. Why count the people? Get organized. Be prepared for battle. But this census has something else in view and has the idea of occupation or settlement. It has the idea of living in the land. And so we'll notice a few additions to this one. One thing to notice as you work through 26 is the addition of family units. When you're in chapter 1, you're getting numbers. This tribe has this many numbers. When you're here in 26, you're going to see them talk about the family and the background to that. Why? It's much more personal record. It helps in the distribution of the land, but more importantly, it highlights something as they enter the land. What did God promise Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? That he would make of their descendants a what? A great nation. And so we rewind all the way back and we start hearing about the sons of the sons and the sons that set up these clans. Why are we hearing about these clans? Why are we taking numbers, not the book, but literal numbers, and attaching them to family units? 
Because those family units can trace back to sons of Jacob. And Jacob has a promise given to him that his descendants will be a great nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's a covenant that God renewed over and over again. Why in 26 do you see family units crop up? One, it's very helpful, very personal. Helps them as they settle in the land, as the clans, they get their allotment. But then within allotment, who gets what part? That helps them situate themselves. But it's about showing the nation of Israel that God had fulfilled what he said he would do. They are a great nation, but now it's traced all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know our founding fathers, but we don't necessarily relate to them. I don't relate at all. I come from Holland, right? I don't know how many people are related to George Washington. Have you had that? Like, you know, everyone's, he didn't have any biological children, so no one is. But either way, um, a lot of people think they were. But you know, everyone traces back that connection. This is that connection. But the point is, we want to connect to what God has said. And so God, when he counts them again, which has a lot of the same reasons, we're going to get family units. And here's the fascinating thing as they're looking at this. Highlights the promise of God as Wenham notes, given to the patriarchs, that their descendants would become a great nation. And though it's delayed by human sin, those promises are not erased. That's important. What did all these people see the last 40 years? What's the one constant in the wilderness wanderings? Death. People not getting into the land of Canaan. An unfulfilled promise. Now you go back to all those family units. You back all the way back over and you say, you're in the land, you're going in. God is not fickle, and he doesn't erase his promises. Our sin, the sin of the people, delayed it, but it didn't erase anything. And then land was to be given by size. If you go to uh, chapter 26, verse 54, to many thou shalt give the more inheritance, and to few thou shalt give the less inheritance. To everyone shall his inheritance be given according to those that were numbered of him. So right away, the count is going to help us see how much land is needed because it's going to be equally distributed. And then it says in verse 55 that the general location would be assigned by lot. Notwithstanding, it says, the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. And so we're going back to those names. And so what we find is, how much land you get is determined by how many people you have. Where you land is designed by lot. And it's not, we think, okay, you're a small tribe, you pull from the small hat. You're a big tribe where you got the big tracts of land. No, you're pulling from where you're going to go inhabit. And if you're a small tribe and you picked X location where you're going to get the portion of it that you're going to fulfill, and someone else would draw by lot. And so there was no favoritism. You see what's been erased in this? No one gets first dibs. Even Judah who leaves, there's no first dibs. They're assigned by lot to see what's going to happen. But as I mentioned earlier, what do we notice about the population in verse 26? The, the, the fighting men, it's about the same. Which, even with a lost generation, should have been bigger. You usually grow. And so we're drawn in 26 to notice the effects of past failures. Why is it 600,000 and 600,000? This is an interesting, I think a fascinating number display. One, it proves God's grace and mercy. What should the number have been? Zero. 
They are utterly, let me go back, a wicked people, just like us. They deserve a zero. They get 600,000, and it speaks to God's mercy and grace. But the same number speaks to consequence. They should have been way more. Why weren't they? Rebellion. We're going to talk about the bronze serpent being lifted up, so much Jesus be lifted up, and people ought to look. That happened not too long ago, and people are dying. 24,000 people died here. The earth has swallowed a bunch of people. The, the plague passed through. Remember the one with Dotham and Abiram, and, and that thing's just waving through the people, and Aaron runs out with incense, and people are, are dying. And so what we get is the reality of past failures. There's no growth which showed... I put here a generational delay. It's like a pause button was hit. Consequence of sin. The fact that there's 600,000 is also, though, God's grace and mercy. And through all of Israel's story and ours, we do see God's grace and mercy. But, but sin still bears consequence, and when you read the numbers, that speaks to that as well. It's the amazing nature of how God works. His grace and mercy on display, the consequence for sin. It doesn't, it doesn't just erase or eradicate what would take place. They are no further as a nation than when they rejected God at the first entrance possibility. Yet as we prepare for conquest, for occupation, for land distribution, we encounter some problems not yet addressed and a very specific one. See, a problem comes up when a whole generation kind of dies in a more sudden fashion. And I know 40 years isn't sudden, but imagine the, the number of people you don't have one whole generation is just gone as you're about to embark on it. And it creates some issues. And one of the issues is that who is left behind? And, and as a dad passes away because of his own sin and being part of the group that didn't want to enter the land, some families had no male descendants to take occupation. Thus, meaning that dad's name is going to fade. It's going to leave. There's going to be nothing to lock in. There's no footing for that name. Because males inherited the land, but now we have an example of a family of daughters who do not want their family name to die out. Now, before you're, you know, everyone's hackles are raised and the women don't get any land and the guys do, the women would marry into a family and their inheritance would come from that, would be attached to that family, and their dad was supposed to give them a dowry. He's supposed to give a significant inheritance to them. When you're reading the story of Laban, he's supposed to have given a dowry for his daughters. What does he do instead? Makes Jacob work you know, like, like a slave for him. And so you see the, the backwardness. So these daughters are coming not because they see that God has abandoned them, but they're saying our dad will not have an inheritance. Our family name is going to disappear because we won't get any land. And it's a fascinating story because you think it's something small. But it actually, they showed up in chapter 26, they show up in chapter 27, and they show up again in chapter 36. So if you're wondering if this is important, it is. It mattered. In other words, uh, you're gonna, we're going to dive into, a, I call it a challenged family in the sense of what's going on. But we're going to notice something, and I want you to realize what you see is God's involvement in the details. That God is not distant saying, figure it out. I gave you the land, go in and take it, figure it out, park yourself somewhere, go farm, don't worship idols, and leave me alone. Instead, we're going to watch Moses come to him with a very specific issue, and he's going to rule on it. So the daughters of Zelophehad, 
which is mentioned in 2633. Um, and they recount to, their, to Moses and Elias that their dad died in his sins, that he died as, as one of those rebels that didn't enter the land. But they make sure to say he didn't die in rebellion against God, specifically with Korah. In other words, he wasn't part of one of those extra rebellions, but he was participatory. In other words, they're taking, they're not saying, well, God killed him off and now we're stuck alone as daughters. They're saying he died for his sin. It was justifiable what was done to him, but he wasn't specifically rebellious in an extra rebellion. And they go on and they, they want to make sure that his name doesn't cease or that he has no, they want their dad's name to have possession in the land. And so Moses goes to the Lord who gives a new ruling for daughter-only families and even goes beyond that to talk about people with no descendants. And as I mentioned, we find that God is involved in all the details. It's something that comes through in the New Testament, comes through all of Scripture. They do not serve a distant God. When they're praying to Baal, and I think it's Elisha there, or Elijah, I always get those two mixed up when you're talking about them without reading ahead of time, and they're, they're sacrificing and see which one's going to respond, and he mocks them because Baal is asleep or he's, he's doing something else. How does God respond? Boom, burns up the water. There's a confidence of his involvement. It is not pretend. It's not distance. And God is not some distant, intelligent designer off away doing nothing. And as good as it is to believe in intelligent design, it lacks a connection to the true God because God didn't just wind a clock and turn it loose. God doesn't own an ant farm. God is involved in our life, sovereignly in control of everything, which we can see that if you have an ant farm, right? You can throw it down, you can shake it up, you do what you want. But he's in it. He's involved in it. And this is one of the ways we see that. And you look at 27... I'll read 6 through 11 just to see God's answer to their question. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no son, then he shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. We've changed the law right here. We haven't completely altered it, but we've changed it so the daughter would inherit. The, the, the name doesn't die. And if you have no daughter, then he shall give his inheritance unto his brethren. And if you have no brethren, then he shall give his inheritance unto his father's brethren. And his father have no brethren, then he shall give his inheritance unto his kinsmen that is next to him of his family, and he shall possess it, and it shall be unto the children of Israel a statute of judgment as the Lord commanded Moses. And so what happens is we have a circumstance come up where a family was going to be cut out of the record, cut out of the inheritance, cut out of the lineage. And God says, absolutely not. They're right. This is how you solve this problem. You solve it the right way. And then God gives instructions. Well, if he doesn't have a son, then the daughters get the land. If there's no daughters, then his brother get the land. If he doesn't have any brothers, his uncles get the land. If he doesn't have any uncles, then it goes to his kinsmen. In other words, it stays in those clan groupings, which is going to be the question that comes up in 36, when people say, well, wait a second, if those daughters get land in Manasseh and then they marry an Ephraimite, that land after 50 years is going to pass to Ephraim. And then they have to marry people from Manasseh because we want to keep the land in the family units or keeping it there. But instead of cropping out, God is involved to maintain it. 
And from it all, though, we find God involved, involved in the details of how they're going to occupy the land, how they'll fill it, how they'll order it, how they'll inherit it, how everything will be maintained from generation to generation, which leads us to another detail that must be addressed. What happened at the last complaining about water? What did Moses do that he shouldn't have done? Struck a rock, which was denying God again. The sin is deeper than it appears. Oh, he got frustrated and hit the rock. What did he say? I'm going to bring water out of the rock. He bypassed God. He stepped into God's role, which he wasn't supposed to do. In essence, took the glory from God and gave it to himself. And for that, was not entering the land. God is gracious. He should have struck Moses dead right then and there, but he didn't. And we're going to watch God's grace, but the consequence of sin is still there. Moses is not going to enter the land. He could not occupy it. And so as we prepare for occupation, we must engage with, and I use the word, a changed figure. Look at chapter 27, 12 through 23. I'll read it, and you'll see this unfold. And the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee up into this Mount Abiram, and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou also shalt be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered. For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, and the strife of the congregation to sanctify me at the waters before their eyes, that is the water of Meriban in Kadesh and the wilderness of Zin. In other words, you were there to make me holy to them, and you failed to do it. And Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, because he hasn't gone up yet, he says what he's going to have to do. You're going to see the land, but you're not going to enter it. What is the first thing he says? Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation which may go out before them and which may go in before them and which may lead them out, which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And I just want you to get a picture of who Moses is. You're going to die. You're not going to go on the land. He says, but please have a leader. Set a leader up. Shows his heart. And the Lord said unto Moses, take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and that lay thine hand upon him and set him before Eliezer, the priest, and before all the congregation and give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put, the word some is in italics, sometimes it's because it's not in the Hebrew, and the Hebrew it would read, and thou shalt put of thine honor upon him, the implication is some of your honor, that's why they add that, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. That's important to understand the nuance of that, though, because how much honor is he giving to Joshua? Some is the idea. Could be a lot, but it's not what? It's not all, because it's not all his to give, because God is not going to deal with Joshua exactly how he dealt with Moses. And it says, And he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word shall they go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua, and he set him before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Now, what do we see here with a changed figure? One is that Moses is given a clear reminder of consequences. You're not entering the land because you failed to bring me glory, to hold me holy for the people. He gives the blame to the people. The people are, are difficult. But you didn't do what I told you to do. He's responsible. But you see God's grace and mercy. You do get to see the land. I'll let you see it. 
And notice that no one else is going up with him in the mountain, that God is going to take him up there. He's going to be with God. He's going to die, and God's going to take care of him. Moses doesn't respond with any plea for entry. Instead, he reveals his heart for God's people by asking for a replacement of leadership. That's a lot of heart there. Forty years, third of your life, you've been wandering with these people. You messed up one time, but you had a lot of responsibility. You had to honor and hold up God holy, and you failed to do so. And instead of complaining or even pleading, because he's pleaded with God before, he says, please put someone over him. Now, of course, that's God's plan to begin with. And he asked for a replacement of leadership. And it's, it's critical to see this, a replacement that will not be the same as Moses. How did Moses talk with God? Face to face, right? God reprimanded the people. He says, you come after Moses. Everybody else speaks through some other vision or dream, but I don't send dreams to Moses, and I don't send visions to Moses, but I talk with him face to face. That was unique. That's not going to be. Joshua is going to have, we're going to see a theophany come to give him courage, but when he goes to talk with God, he'll go to Eliezer. He'll work through the priest. He'll work through that channel. That's being set up. That, that, that makes sense. But Moses spoke with God directly. But what did he ask for? He wanted a set leader. What does God do? He says, bring Joshua out, the guy you've been working with. Set him in front of the people. Set him in front of Eliezer. Give him some of your honor or give, some, give honor to him, but you can't give all. And then you're going to give him a charge in front of the people. You're going to put your hand on him. What does all that tell you? That there's a clear confirmation from Moses and God that Joshua is a replacement. This is who is going to do it. And I kind of close out this evening because I have about three minutes before I better blaze and go run a rally. Um, preparations are being made. We see God setting up Israel to end the land, to conquer the land, and to occupy the land. But these preparations don't come without setbacks, and the setbacks are due to sin. It's a rebellion and a worldly appetite, an appetite that is indulged with the first temptation. Yet within the setbacks, the wholesale pursuit of the world, we do find strong leadership. Many, up to a thousand at different levels, are executed, but many more still are mourning, and feel the sin against God. What do we learn from the leaders that mourned? Well, try to be a leader that mourns and not the one that's impaled on a stick. That's a, that's a simple one, right? But mourn, we are to mourn. It's a, not just okay, it's, it's actually correct for us to see the sin of our own people we mourn about the world, but we should even more mourn and be on our knees about those who are supposedly in the church leading astray, tickling with the world, flirting with the world. Mourn. Feel the sin that is against God. I think most of the time we're angry for ourselves. We're burned up about our rights being taken away or them infringing on what we know is right. Let's be upset about what they've done against the Almighty God, the Holy God, and what that means. Um, though... People will brazenly ignore the grief and publicly attempt to push their appetites into religion. There's no one meddling in the church that does it secretly. Ultimately, they are brazen. They don't care. They don't care that people want to follow the Bible. They don't care that you want to follow the Bible. If you watch people and you think they care that you want to follow Scripture, when they are set on their way, 
recognize, though, that in that moment you can be jealous for God. And jealousy for God, and it's the core lesson that sits here, and I'm going to say it, don't bring the spear, okay? I'm going to make sure no one here, I speared him, but Kenny told me to. I don't want to have to go to court and say I didn't say that, you know. But I do want you to recognize what jealousy is. You cannot be jealous for God if you're meddling in the world. There is no way that Phineas spears a guy and a lady through the gut. And Hebrew is very suave in telling you that. He goes into the tent where they are engaging in immorality, and it says it went through her lower belly and his lower belly. This guy killed him while they were engaging in this. You don't do that if you've been watching that sin and wondering how that would be. Oh, man, I wonder if that worship, when we can mix that into the temple, you know, why not? You can't be curious about the world. You can't be, and I, the word I use is flirting with it. If you're going to be jealous for God, you cannot be flirting with the world. And the question you have to ask yourself is not, will I be jealous for God? The question to ask yourself is, are you flirting with the world? Because if you're flirting with the world, you cannot and will not be jealous for God because it's impossible. And so my call is be Phineas. Be jealous for God. Keep your heart pure from the world and the flirtation with the world and be prepared to act the way you're supposed to act. And though they enter with the same number, it still shows the cost of sin. And though he led faithfully, Moses still had to face the fallout of his disobedience and denial of God, yet he faced it with a heart of mercy and grace. We look at God and we think, he hit the rock instead of talking to it. Why this punishment? And then go rewind. Aaron's sons did what when they died? Yeah, a strange fire. They did something not God's way. What did Moses do? He did something not God's way, and he's in a position of leadership. You know what should have happened to him? What happened to the two sons of Aaron? Should have been burned up on the spot. God's mercy and grace that he even lived. And though he could not answer, enter, Moses still thought of God's people, and we know this, and we know his heart by his love. What does First John say? How are people going to know we're Christians? By our love, right? For who? One another. By our love for God's people. You rind everything back in Moses' life, and what are some of the last things he's doing? Showing love for God's people. I don't get the end of the land, but can you make sure there's someone leading them, God, that has your spirit on you, that's going to follow, that you're going to work through, because otherwise they're going to scatter. They need somebody. They need somebody who's going to listen to you and follow you. He had a love for God's people. And we see some of these New Testament principles that are already replicated in the Old Testament working its way through. You see the connection in all scriptures. We see what Moses' response is to what would be very disappointing news. He loved God's people so much that he wanted to make sure that there was no hindrance to God's involvement in their life. He is consumed with people following God.